Our reading is from Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Thank you. Uh, thank you for reading. Evening, everyone. Let me lead us in prayer, and then uh, we'll make a start on Matthew 18. Our great God and Father, what a wonderful God you are. We sing this evening, we meet this evening, we uh, gather even if it's at home, knowing that you are the one who is not willing that any of your little children should perish. You'll pursue us with love to the very ends of the ages. And so, Father, would we be overcome by that, thrilled by that, and indeed become more like that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you saw in the news uh, last week on the beach at Durdle Door, the magnificently named uh, beach in Dorset, that uh, a crowd saved a drowning swimmer being uh, dragged out to sea. So he was caught in a rip current and uh, was clearly distressed. And people worked out the difference between hello and the sort of international symbol of uh, a distress. And uh, he was clearly in, in, in trouble. And so the shout went up on the beach and um, spontaneously um, people formed a, a human chain rather than, it was a, don't swim out to him, let's form a chain. So well, apparently one person, number one, sort of grabbed onto a big rock on the beach and then, you know, human chain, 20 plus people and the last person grabbed hold of um, a bloke who was uh, drowning out at sea, and then they sort of reeled themselves uh, uh, back into the beach. It was just a very spontaneous thing. No one there said, uh, um, oh, look, before I help out, who is he out there? Uh, what does he do for a living? Um, is he a politician? Oh, I'm not so sure. Um, is he, what, what is, who, uh, what do you do? What are you wearing? I don't like your shorts, um, so I'm not going to get involved. None of that. Just a spontaneous, oh, there's someone helping. Let's all get together and pull them back in. And I thought in many ways, just a lovely little picture 
of a church family operating well. Oh, for the sake of the one, let's throw all our resources in. Doesn't care what we're doing, doesn't matter who you are. Uh, don't like the look of your hand. None of that. Just all in. Someone needs our help. Let's pull together and address it. Oh, there's a lovely picture of a church. And so as we start a new academic year or church year, we kind of view it that way in September, we're going to spend three weeks thinking about the church in Matthew chapter 18. Some will know. They're essentially, in Matthew's Gospel, there are five sermons. So chapters 5 to 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 10 is the Sermon on Mission. Chapter 13, the Sermon on the Kingdom. Chapter 23 to 25, the Sermon on the Future. But chapter 18 is the Sermon on the Church. Here's how you operate as church, is what chapter 18 is all about. And we'll look at it in three weeks, but today we'll see that, well, the main idea is great ones love the little ones. In the kingdom of God, the great ones are those who love the little ones. That's what greatness is. We'll work through it like this. Uh, love humbles itself, or love humbles self, verses 1 to 5. Love protects others, verses 6 to 10. And then love pursues others, uh, 12 to 14. Okay? Love humbles self, love protects others, love pursues others, those three. First then, verses 1 to 5. Love humbles self. You get a question asked in uh, chapter 18, verse 1, and the rest of the chapter in many ways undermines it or completely refocuses it. So chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they should know this. We, we had this back in chapter 5. Greatness is following Jesus. Greatness is keeping his commandments. So they should know it. Anyway, but they asked the question. They've clearly forgotten. Who is the greatest? As Scott said at the top of the service, it's a very familiar question. Who is the goat? in football. Is Lionel Messi the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Is uh, Lewis Hamilton destined to be the GOAT? It's such an unflattering title, isn't it? Anyway, greatest of all time. Uh, but they still use it. Is, is Lewis Hamilton, did he win this afternoon? Probably. Um, did, is he the greatest of all time in Formula One? Who's the, is Boris Johnson the greatest private? <laughs> Sorry. Um, who's the greatest of all time? And so here, the disciples, they're coming up and saying, um, well, the story before has all been about, you know, Jesus talking to Peter, and clearly perhaps some have had their noses put out of joint a little bit. Hold on a minute. Enough of him. Enough about Peter. What about me? Uh, who's the greatest of all time, Jesus? Who's it going to be? Yeah. Wrong question. So Jesus, verse 2, he calls a little child to himself. Nice visual aid. Have a look at this. Toddler. Or oh, I don't know, we're not told how old the child is. And he says to them, verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus says, yeah, enough of all that. You need to become like a child. But what does that mean? 
there's a lot of piffle written about it, uh, and needlessly so. My favorite was one commentator who said that Jesus is saying they must stop being competitive because children are inherently non-competitive. And you think you don't have children, do you? Um, school teachers are children not competitive. Uh, I think it's a, anyway. But Jesus tells us what it means to become like a little child. Verse four: It's to be humble. It's to take a lowly position. Look, we're a child-centered culture in the 21st century. But but back then, first century, children are seen and not heard. Children get fed after everyone else has had whatever they wanted. Children are the nobodies. You need to become a nobody, says Jesus. Perhaps there's an element that children recognize their dependence. Children just expect someone to feed them, to clothe them. You never actually see, I mean, something will come here in the morning as well, but you never actually see, a, say, a, a five-year-old saying, uh, anyway, sorry, I must go. I've got another appointment, and it's really important in order to secure my next meal. So, uh, sorry, must dash. Uh, lovely to see you. They tend not to do that. Their concept of time is, uh, they just expect food. And if it doesn't turn up, they let you know quite loudly. They're just, they're dependent. They're needy. They're lowly. Yeah, just like that, Jesus says. Because the way into the kingdom of God, that is the way to become a Christian, is to recognize your lowly position before God. To recognize you need him. Verse 3, you have to do this, you know. Unless you change. Translate it, turn, repent. Uh, uh, unless you turn around, you don't get into the kingdom of God. This is how you become a Christian. Uh, you have to stop pursuing worldly greatness and recognize that in God's sight, you are worthless, you are a nobody. But he gives you all you need. He gives you a relationship. He gives you entry into heaven. And says, you, you absolutely are nobody who deserves nothing, but I'll give it to you as long as you say, yes, please. You have to become needy like a child. It's the way you get into the kingdom of heaven. It's the way you become a Christian. But, but Jesus here is addressing his disciples, so actually it's also the way on. It's the way you keep going as a Christian. Even as followers of Jesus, these disciples, they need to repent, stop it, turn around from their pursuit of worldly greatness. You still see it amongst Christians, don't you? I, I laugh at myself. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was overseas uh, speaking at a Christian conference, and um, uh, day one, uh, one of the other speakers was uh, quite a well-known bloke, and I was, I'd never met him before, and was looking forward to meeting him. Uh, and so I uh, went up to him early on and said, oh, hello, uh, Mr. And uh, my name's Matt Fuller, and uh, it's just lovely to meet you. And um, uh, I just wanted to, to let you know that the book that you wrote on this, I found it so just personally, profoundly helpful. Um, 
So it's just a delight to, to meet you, if you had to say that to you face to face. And <laughs> he said, um, yeah, I've never heard of you. And I've got lots of friends in the UK, and I told them I was speaking at a conference with you, and they hadn't heard of you. And he walked off. Amazing. It was just absolutely amazing. And uh, it was one of those moments you sort of go, what just happened there? That was, that was weird. So weird. And then after, and I was just, actually, I was just genuinely amused, because of course, you, personally, you just sort of go, ooh. And you, you do feel like a nobody. But also you think, hold on a minute. I thought you were an impressive Christian leader. I've really benefited from your books, but you've never heard of me, so you don't care about me, so you walk away. Oh. Well, that's, that's actually pretty disappointing. Uh, I don't think so much of that. Now, reject worldly sense of greatness and renown. Although verse 4, I think it is striking, Jesus doesn't completely ignore ambition. He just wants to redirect it. So verse 4, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he doesn't rule out the category altogether. But he says greatness, it's not viewed in terms of status or ability or influence. But whether you have a childlike trust in Jesus and whether you care for the nobodies. The great ones care for the little ones. Those who are great in the kingdom of God care deeply about the nobodies. That's greatness. There seems to me a certain irony. Great men and women never know that they're great, but small men and women never know that they're small. See, in God's thinking, Great people never know that they're great because they're too busy looking at other people and caring for other people. They just don't even consider themselves. And there's greatness in that. Small people are self-obsessed, but they just don't realize they're very small. See, love humbles self. That's the first thing. Verses 1 to 5, love humbles self. But uh, moving straight in from, from that, uh, secondly, verses 5 to 10, love protects others. Actually, there's a funny old, um, uh, this translation I'm using, the NIV, has got a division, uh, which is rubbish, because actually verses 5 and 6 are, five and six, five and six are connected by a, whoops, uh, by a little but, a little but, you know, they have to run together. Verse 5 is, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, but if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung round their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So the contrast is you either welcome the nobodies, the little ones, or you cause them to stumble. Obviously it's binary, Jesus is talking. But here again, the, the, the little ones, they're the followers of Jesus, verse 6, those who believe in him. But they're the little ones, therefore I think probably the unimportant Jesus, do you see the contrast? Welcome, cause to stumble. The first way then, I guess, you, in Jesus' is thinking that you can cause someone to stumble is if you just make them feel unwelcome. Well, that's important for you and me, isn't it? Because you clearly don't want to cause anyone to stumble because that's 
Well, you'd be better off drowning tomorrow than cause that to happen, says Jesus. So you have but you can cause people to stumble by not welcoming them. I read this in the week. Every church family has its little or insignificant people, those who tend to be disliked or ignored. But the Christian family has to treat them differently. And that's true, isn't it? Every family, biological family, has the sort of awkward character. Every church family has the awkward character. But you've got to welcome them. You've got to feel included. That's the first way, I think, or the, or the most obvious way in the passage to cause someone to stumble. Not the only way, though, because Jesus goes on, verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Woe to the world. I guess opposition causes people to stumble. False biblical, unbiblical teaching would causes people to stumble. But in verses 8 and 9, the thing that causes people to stumble is behavior. So end of verse 7, woe to the person through whom stumbling blocks come. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. But look, you can read at verses 8 and 9 and think, what are they doing here? I mean, I remember Jesus saying something similar in the Sermon on the Mount about lust. You know, cut it off, gouge it out if it causes you to lust. But this is all about the church. What was it, what was it doing here? Well, the point clearly seems to be your behavior can affect other people. So you need to stop your sin for the sake of other people. And it really matters. Your behavior has an impact upon others. So if there's obvious sin, cut it off for your sake, yes, but for the sake of others too. Verse 10, I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Tricky, you can ask me afterwards. I think he's talking about the spirit of believers in heaven after they've died, is what he's talking about. But you certainly don't want to cause anyone to stumble. So Jesus is just being realistic here. Sexual immorality will spread in a church. The, the, the coveting grasping of power, well, it'll spread if it's seen in a church. A, a desire to hoard wealth, well, if you see everyone else doing it, you'll do the same in a church. And you may cause someone to stumble more seriously than you are. Stop it. You need to stop it. Of course, cutting something off, gouging something out, sounds pretty drastic. Until you realize, of course, Jesus is saying, you're saving yourself by doing it. Uh, did you read this a little while ago, 18 months ago, I think? Paul Dibbins, 57-year-old 57, 57 uh, former soldier, had uh, spent too long outside in winter, and uh, his toes on his left foot were, had developed gangrene. 
And uh, so he went to his GP and said, well, these don't look great. And the GP said, no, they're really not great. That'll spread up your leg. You need to get those seen to. Or, um, you know, the whole leg will go gangrenous, and then you'll have to have the whole leg amputated. So, yeah, you've got to sort that out. Uh, anyway, got, got an appointment. Uh, anyway, hospital appointment. It was, it was six weeks in the future. Uh, he was going to have to wait. And he's thinking, oh, this gangrene's going to spread. And Paul Dibbing got a bit anxious about this. So he did what you and I would have done. He went into his living room, and he chopped them off himself. Using military training, he just, no anesthetic, the way he described it, he just got a towel out of the kitchen drawer and bit down hard, uh, got a knife to cut off the flesh, and then scissors to go through the, um, the bones and the tendons. And you, and you this, I mean, I have to tell you at home, everyone here is going, and rightly so. I mean, what sort of, why would you, I mean, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? Apparently afterwards, he did go and see a surgeon who said, oh, you've done a top-notch job, well done, Mr. Dibbin. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because you don't want to lose your leg. It's the only reason he did it. To prevent something far worse. Pretty drastic. Oh, yeah. But that's what Jesus is saying. It's better for you to limp into heaven than skip into hell. And maybe we forget that sometimes in the Christian life, discipleship's painful. And sometimes in the Christian life, drastic measures have to be taken. And it hurts. It's not easy. Cutting off your toenails with no anesthetic, toenails, that's all right. Cutting off your toes with no anesthetic that is not easy, but you do it because you know that short-term pain gives you long-term benefits. And the disciple knows that the short-term pain of cutting off, gouging out, gives you eternal rewards. And if you think you can always avoid that pain by being a Christian disciple, you just don't believe Jesus. Sometimes, drastic action. Love humbles self, love protects others briefly, and love pursues others. Verses 11 to 14. Ah, oh, we know this one, don't we? Uh, 12 to 14, rather. What do you think, says Jesus, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Ah, we know this one. This is my favorite from Luke 15. Apart from, it's not the same. It's the same illustration, but in Luke 15, he's saying, yeah, you've got to pursue people people who are not Christians. Here he's saying to disciples, saying you've got to pursue Christians who are wandering away. Verse 12, it's the Christian who is wandering away is being spoken of here. The little ones here, they're wandering off, the half-hearted, the nominal. Well, easy just to think, well, they've gone, their fault. Don't do that. Don't despise them by doing that. Because how does, God do, how does God view them? Well, verse 12, he'll do, go on a crazy expedition to find the one. Verse 13, when he finds the one who's drifted away, he's happier about that than the 99. And with a God like that, how dare you and I be indifferent to those who are going astray? 
and with a God who's pursued us like that, how can we not be moved to pursue others in the same way? So very practically, when we finish in a few moments, or if you're at home, can you just think, look, as we limp out of lockdown, who can you think of who's wandering away? From your discipleship group, from those who are on the fringe. Because Jesus would say, pursue them. Go after them. That's what God would do. Love pursues others. So look, there is, uh, uh, there's the first bit of this uh, sermon on the church. Love humbles self, love protects others, love pursues others. Like Jesus. Because the great ones love the little ones. They love the nobodies. So we want to be like Jesus, humble. Like he was humble to death. Protecting others, or he cut off his life for the sake of you and me. Pursuing others, he's pursued us through the ages. He'll pursue us till the end of our lives with love so that we're safe with him. And greatness in the kingdom is loving the nobodies, loving the little ones like Jesus does. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our great God and Father, we've sung. We've sung that when we survey the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things that we view as gain, we count as loss. We pour contempt on our pride. When we look at him, his great concern for nobodies like us, when he is the greatest man who's ever walked this planet, for he is the living God. Father, would we know that we're a nobody who's been loved by him? Would we seek to care for others similarly? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.